Hello there. My name is Nick Cohen and welcome to The Bunker. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has thrown up three questions. How did Russia become a militarist gangster state that commits crimes against humanity without any qualms of conscience? What influence has the flood of money out of Russia into Britain and the rest of Europe had? And finally, where does the Russian leadership go now? You can imagine those questions as circles in a Venn diagram. At the centre of them all is my guest today, Catherine Belton, whose book, Putin's People, has provoked the most extraordinary response. I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. What you wrote and what then happened to you in the courts in Britain, we could fill hours and hours talking about it. I wonder if we could get right into the heart of things, because before Putin put him in prison, Alexei Navalny, the uh, Russian opposition leader, quoted from your book in a video. Can you say why he was giving you some very welcome publicity and what happened next? Yeah, I was pretty surprised. Uh, Navalny, uh, you know, during his convalescence from the poisoning from Novichok in Germany, he embarked on his latest and greatest investigation into uh, Putin's own personal wealth. It was an investigation into Putin's palace in the Black Sea. And it also kind of drew the threads uh, back to his closest allies, the people that he worked with in the KGB in Dresden, and how they'd been a constant throughout his career. In fact, financing not just the Kremlin strategic operations, but also helping pad Putin's nest. So he did this brilliant uh, investigation that we all know about into sort of the garish opulence of Putin's $1 billion palace on the Black Sea and, and who were the cronies behind financing of it, including many of those who he'd known uh, from the Dresden years in the late 80s. And I think he quoted uh, this anecdote from my book because it was quite telling of, of Putin's mindset uh, of his inferiority complex and this quite petty uh, power games that he plays and how he needs these external expressions of wealth in order to kind of confirm himself as, as the leader. And he quoted an anecdote in, in which sort of Putin had, you know, I was told by, by one of Putin's close allies that soon after Putin arrived in Moscow in 96, when he got his first job in the Kremlin, uh, he'd been given an apartment by the chief of the Kremlin property department as all officials uh, moving to Moscow were. And he'd also brought with him his closest deputy, Igor Sechin, who was well known then as Putin's obsequious servant, his bag carrier. And they'd both been given apartments in Moscow. But it turned out when Sechin had a housewarming party, invited Putin and a couple of others over to show off his new flat. And when Putin got there, you could see him bristling and he asked Sechin, well, great flat, how big is it? And so Sechin went off and scurried off to, to ruffle through some papers and told him exactly how big it was. And when he did, Putin went pale and because he'd realised that Sechin, his deputy, who's eight years his junior, had been given a bigger flat than him. And so he was very, very upset about this. And the vanity of small men. Yes, yes. And so he told Sechin, uh, apparently according to this close friend of, of both of them then, congratulations. 
And Sechin told this friend that when he heard him say congratulations, he knew it meant the exact opposite. He said it was like receiving a, a shot in the head, a control shot in the head. And that for several weeks afterwards, Putin couldn't bring himself to speak to him. So it was actually, it was just very telling in that sort of Putin has this inferiority complex. He has a chip on his shoulder. He needs the external trappings of wealth in order to sort of just essentially believe that he is the the leader. He has to be the number one. This is why he needs this huge palace on the Black Sea. Just It's an expression of power. And uh, unfortunately, this is why too he seems to need to dominate neighbouring countries. Now, Catherine, within weeks, you and your publishers, HarperCollins, are then subjected to quite the most extraordinary and outrageous, I was going to say outrageous, I'll stick with outrageous, Hmm. libel action in the British courts I think I've ever seen. Four Russian billionaires and Rosneft, the Russian state energy company, whose boss is... Uh, Mr Igor Sechin, of course. Yeah, the very guy who who was terrified of getting the wrong apartment. (laughs) Sue you for libel in London. To their disgrace... English solicitors and barristers rushed to get the fees. Can you tell me, and I think I, I wrote about it at the time, I worked out that the combined assets of the people threatening you were tens and tens of billions, close to 100 billion. Can you say what it felt like to be on the receiving end of, of lawfare of that sort? Yeah, it was really quite shocking. I mean, I'd worked so hard on this book. In fact, I'd taken seven years out of my career as a journalist to, to try and write it and, and publish it. When it was first published, yes, we did first uh, receive threatening letters from the lawyers of Roman Abramovich. He was uh, very upset that we dared to cite three of his former associates as suggesting that he'd bought Chelsea Football Club on the orders of Vladimir Putin in order to acquire soft power and influence here in the UK. He was he was very upset about that indeed. But uh, when our lawyers explained to him, look, we've put all the allegations that you're upset about to your spokesperson, the responses are included in the book. We have had some robust exchanges of letters and then he went away. Uh, however, uh, shortly after Navalny does make that reference to my book and wave it in the air in his video on the Black Sea, we got an eight months, so eight months after we'd last heard from Abramovich out of the blue, all of a sudden we're getting letters from his lawyers again saying, actually, we are going to sue you. That eight month silence uh, that we just had apparently didn't mean anything. It didn't mean that we were going away. We're going to go ahead and sue you. And that was very rapidly followed by uh, Michael Friedman, Piotr Avin of Alpha Group, also uh, going ahead and, and issuing writs. And then Rosneft, as you rightly pointed out, headed by Igor Sechin and another Kremlin-connected billionaire. And it did, you know, I mean, just Abramovich on him, by himself was sort of shocking and intimidating enough. But to have all the others then join the pylon, it was just completely, you know, flabbergasting. I didn't know whether HarperCollins would be able to defend the book against uh, such a huge array of, of forces, because even to fight Ab- Abramovich, it was going to cost millions. So to fight five lawsuits at once was just almost, it was too much to ask of any publisher. But I was very, very lucky because HarperCollins just stood up and said, right, no, we're going to get the best QC on board, the best team of lawyers, and we'll fight this. I remember speaking to your publisher, Arabella Pike, 
uh, HarperCollins, who is just wonderful, wonderful woman, she was making the point that to settle this case, and you just had to make tiny changes, mm-hmm. cost one and a half million pounds. Yes. If you'd fought the case and lost, it could have cost you HarperCollins two and a half, three million pounds. In fact, more than that. Um, so just to get to, to fight the five claims simultaneously and get uh, to the preliminary hearing stage on meaning cost HarperCollins £1.5 million alone, just because we were having to fight so many cases simultaneously. Had we then continued to fight the Abramovich case uh, to kind of forward this very strong public interest case that, that we had, it would have cost £2.5 million in the UK court to defend it. And then because he'd doubled up and filed the exact same claim in Australia at the same time, even though he didn't have any business interests and therefore no reputation to protect in Australia. And even though HarperCollins did not publish the book in Australia, he still filed the same claim. And it was a clear attempt to double the costs of defending the book and intimidate HarperCollins out of defending it. I can't think of any better illustration of how when it comes to the civil law in Britain, we don't have the rule of law, we have the rule of the rich. Because most publishers, most newspaper editors, I mean, God knows, you know, the people, the people who run this, this podcast company, when faced with that kind of threat, would just back down. Yeah. The risks are unbelievable. And, you know, one reason why I was so keen to have you on and why I defend you so hard is that we are wide open. This country is wide open to having... Uh, writers, journalists intimidated by tyrannical regimes and super regs. And maybe, Catherine, as a result of what happened to you, things will change a little. I really hope so. And I must say, Nick, that I was so grateful for all the articles that you wrote in support of the book and in in support of HarperCollins and me. Um, it really was a boost because, you know, it is very intimidating and you don't think that you can sort of make any public noise about these threats yourself because of the, the legal process. I mean, you're not allowed to turn to journalists or other organisations for support. You're meant to hear uh, the claims in court but doing so is just tremendously costly and for any publisher a couple of million pounds is an enormous sum uh, yet for an oligarch of course it's chump change that he won't even notice if it's missing the next day. I had a great feeling of shame when Putin invaded Ukraine that this country which for all the faults of the Johnson government has done quite well in getting weapons to the Ukrainians mm. but as journalists as a supposedly free country with a free press, we have been unable and too frightened and too intimidated to investigate Russian oligarchs' wealth in Britain. It's the most extraordinary thing. You must have had it when you write your book. As soon as you start writing about this, publishing lawyers, newspaper lawyers, for good reason, I'm not criticising them in the slightest, but because of our, our wretched and corrupt legal system. They are all over you and, they, and they're constantly saying, well, rewrite that, rewrite this. And you're getting to a stage where readers can't even understand what you're trying to say. But Dominic Raab is promising some changes. Yes. I mean, as, as you pointed out, I think this is hopefully going to be uh, a big silver lining to the overreach of the Kremlin in, in my cases, I think, because they did try so hard to squash the book. Uh, it attracted a great deal of attention and, and made very clear uh, where the weaknesses in 
in the in our current libel system lie because you know even though we had this uh, wide-ranging libel reform in 2013 to allow for public interest defense it's very clear that the system is still stacked in favor of the litigants those with the deep pockets because they can drag out proceedings. It takes over a year to have your public interest defense case heard. You have to hand over all your electronic devices during a disclosure process, which again, costs millions and get dragged out for months while uh, the other party can sort of peruse through all your emails and, and text messages and, and so on. So it, you know, it's just a horribly intimidating proceeding in the first place. And hopefully now that the Justice Minister Ministry is discussing reform, there may be a, a kind of a mechanism which allows for a reporting based on the public interest to have much stronger defences so that it isn't, you're not essentially putting the journalist on trial and, and costing and putting all the risk on the publisher uh, in defending it. Because at the moment, the way the system is stacked, it's out of the pocket of, of more or less any media organisation to defend any reporting that could be crucial for national security, like understanding the backgrounds of these oligarchs and how they interact with our establishment is incredibly important for defending our national security as the Russia report by the Parliamentary Intelligence and Security Committee only made too clear. And yet we have had UK newspapers time and again just shy away from reporting on any of these individuals because they receive legal letters and they know that the costs are going to be too high. So hopefully what the Justice Ministry will be looking at will redress some of that and allow an early dismissal mechanisms for any suits that are targeting or trying to silence uh, public interest reporting. Well, let's hope so. I think we also need just a change of mentality in the judiciary who, who are not. I would be genuinely shocked if I found an English judge had taken the bribe. But what they can't accept is that because of the enormous costs of the law, a hundred times the cost of bringing a libel case in France, for instance, um, because of the enormous cost of the law, they are uncorrupt men and women presiding over a corrupt system. They're still in the law, partly for good reasons, because of the tabloids and Levis and what have you, mm. a huge prejudice against writers and journalists. Mm-hmm. And I think some judges have forgotten what a free society is about. Let's get back to the book and to the present where we are. This strikes me as three groups of people. There are the original oligarchs who made their money in the 90s, the robber barons, if you like. Then you describe brilliantly Putin and his KGB associates, who on the one hand justify themselves because they've restored order to the country and deprive oligarchs of their power. On the other hand, are oligarchs themselves because they've stolen everything that hasn't moved. And then finally... There are the sort of ultra-Russian nationalists. Again, you've got sort of concentric circles here. Do you think that the Abramoviches and the rest of them who sued you, do you think that they have much influence there and they support this war? I think they certainly don't. And unfortunately, they don't have uh, much influence. I mean, they are the ones, you know, they made their money in the 90s before Putin came to power. They remember a different era when uh, thing, things were actually more free, when they did 
also have tremendous sway over the Kremlin and how it did business. Putin very uh, clearly turned all that on his head when he jailed Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the richest oligarch of all of them, and took over his company by levying enormous back tax charges against him and the company and made very clear that these same type of back tax charges could be levied against any of the Yeltsin era tycoons. So they were all cowed in, into submission. They realized they had to tow the Kremlin line in order to hold on to their businesses. Indeed, one of these Yeltsin era tycoons told me, he said, look, if I get a call from the Kremlin saying spend $1 billion or $2 billion on this or that strategic project, I can't refuse. You have to comply. So they're all hostages to Putin's Kremlin because he has this sort of monopoly over court decisions, over law enforcement, which can threaten each and every one of them. But that doesn't mean to say that people like Abramovich don't have any influence at all, because we have seen him take on this role as uh, as part of the mediating team. He's been trying to broker help, broker a peace uh, between Ukraine and Russia, though, of course, that has not made any headway. I mean, one member of the Ukrainian delegation said, look, you know, they asked Abramovich to pass on a message to his boss. So those, i.e. Putin, i.e. those relations now have been formed formally distinguished and and laid out. Uh, But the message uh, that Abramovich relayed to Putin was just very resoundly rejected and um, Putin continues regardless. I mean, the way that he's run the country is that sort of in the sphere of the economy and so on, he does let people kind of, uh, those close to him, the cronies, perhaps people like Abramovich, people, the central bank chief, they've had pretty free reign to run uh, some things. But when it gets down to the strategic core interests of the Kremlin in the international arena and domestically, that's it. It's only Putin and this very hardline group of of FSB people surrounding him. And that's become ever more distinct the longer Putin's reign has gone on. Because as if in 2014, when uh, the pro-Kremlin regime of Viktor Yanukovych was toppled, then you also had 150,000 Russian troops amassing on the border with Ukraine. Again, there was a threat of invasion. But in those days, the Yeltsin era tycoons and and people like uh, Roman Abramovich had more sway. They were able to go into Putin then and said, look, you don't have support on the ground in Ukraine. The Ukrainian population isn't going to support a Russian invasion and the West's response will be tough. So he backed off and took the piece of real estate that he could get away with, which was Crimea. But this time he doesn't have the same kind of system of balances around him, particularly after the pandemic when he's been closeted away. Where does he go now? And where does the Russian elite go now? After they've been defeated in the Battle of Kiev, they've lost the Battle of Kharkiv, they've expanded enormous resources in blood and treasure, there are sanctions hitting everywhere, which hits all the criminals in the Kremlin and their wealth. What do they do now? What's your reading of that? Well, unfortunately, you know, um, a lot of the the Yeltsin era tycoons, they're very, very unhappy. Uh, They've watched sort of the 30 years of empire building and all this integration into the West and the millions that they've spent burnishing their reputations in the West. All that has been destroyed with one fell swoop. My heart's bleeding here. I don't know if if, (laughs) if listeners can hear the gushing sound. But what about what about Putin and his inner circle? Where do they go? I'm afraid, you know, they're digging in. 
things are much more uncomfortable for them as a result of sanctions because they do have pockets of the economic elite who are deeply upset and really kind of chafing at uh, being not heard and having sort of the system uh, that they helped build kind of crumble around them. But that's not going to deter Putin and his security men. They, you know, they're fighting in a, a war essentially for their own existence. Unfortunately, now there is going to be a very long war of attrition. The sanctions that the West has imposed more systemically on the Russian economy, they are starting to bite. Imported components, which are needed by 90% of Russia's factories, are now starting to run out. Consumer goods imports are starting to run out, but we haven't seen the full impact yet of that on the on the streets of Moscow. That's only just starting to trickle in. Everyone's been living on inventories and and borrowed time but it is going to start hurting and the central bank chief has been warning of the huge structural difficulties awaiting the Russian economy inflation is going to spiral over 20% and I think it won't be possible for the state propaganda machine to cover up the level of casualties forever. However, I think Putin and his men believe that uh, essentially because there's no democracy in Russia, their system is stronger. And at some point as we get towards the autumn, uh, Western democracies will have to listen to the complaints of their population over rising energy prices, the cost of living crisis. And they think uh, betting on the West focus ebbing and waning and just turning away. The Ukrainian government needs seven billion dollars a month just to survive regardless of of whatever it needs to keep them its own military machine working so these are huge funds and they're just betting that the western governments at some point will just throw up their hands and say you know what we can't afford it and they'll get and they're hoping that they'll get away with it all over again authoritarian regimes can look very strong and can be very strong mm. and terrifyingly strong, like a, a stretched wire, they can snap. And yeah. Russian autocracy has snapped in 1917, in 1989, in 1991. Do you think, obviously, Russian autocracy, but do you think there are forces in, perhaps within the elite, that could make the Putin regime snap? You know, I think that is becoming increasingly likely because despite uh, Putin and his security men still going all in on this war, the risks for them are rising. So the the stakes are rising on on all sides. You know, again, Putin has presided over a system for the last 20 years in which he has been the guarantor of stability, a system in which the sort of those around him have been allowed to become fabulously wealthy. He's undermined that overnight. There is no stability anymore. Uh, And even the soft power influence networks that he worked so hard to create, they've also been undermined. Without Russia's integration into the rest of the world, how can they mess with our own democracies? There is also a contingent in the foreign intelligence establishment that's really upset by these very heavy-handed tactics in Ukraine and the response that it's caused. Because they've also spent decades building up 
influence networks in the West, their own apologists and useful idiots with sanctions and with uh, Russia now taking on fully the status of international pariah, these apologists and influence networks are also uh, being undermined. You know, they've spent decades kind of trying to legitimize Russia within the international community. And that's just also now been completely destroyed. You can't have people on TV with a straight face anymore with trying to justify Putin's actions in Ukraine because it's just not taken seriously. So they're on the back foot and they're very upset. And I think there will be a contingent of progressives within the security establishment who will take Putin on for uprooting and undermining Russia's integration into global markets and in the international community. Because how can Russia compete with the West when it's isolated? It's not possible. We've seen this happen before in the final years of the Soviet Union when there was a progressive group of in the security services who basically inspired and sparked the move uh, towards a, a market economy and of which eventually led to the breakup of the Soviet Union in the end of the hegemony of the Communist Party. I think history will repeat itself, but how long it will take is another question. Um, Putin's legitimacy is also based on his popularity. For now, the state propaganda machine is, is holding that up, but already we can see signs of some opinion polls in which support for the war is starting to wane. People are upset because they can't book their summer holidays. They've all got problems with their foreign bank accounts. They just want life to go back to normal. And um, Putin will only be able to cover up the scale of death within the Russian military for so long. And the, when the inflation really starts to hit people's pockets, he's going to face a lot of problems. Nothing lasts forever, not even the Russian Empire. Catherine, that's been terrific. Thank you so much for coming on. Before we go, I need to say The Bunker comes out six days a week. We also do Oh God, What Now? and Doomsday Watch podcasts. If you could like them on your, whatever it is, Spotify, Apple, Google, Podplayer, give us some nice reviews. There's a Patreon account. If you could give us a little bit of money, we need money, strangely. Uh, you get exclusive offers and ex- exclusive previews. All it remains for me to do is to thank Catherine Belton so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you. It was really great to chat with you. Thanks for the great questions. Likewise. And Catherine's book, Putin's People, if you buy it, you're not just buying an immensely insightful book into the corruption of the Russian elite. You're also sticking two fingers up at the worst elements of the British legal profession. So it's not just a pleasure to buy to buy Catherine. It's a moral duty as well. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.